All right, well, good evening again. We are continuing our Luke series, and um, so we're about to wrap it up. We're in Luke 23 tonight. We'll be in 24 next week, and then, as I mentioned, what Christmas weekend will be uh, different services. But here we are on this third Sunday of Advent, and um, again, this pink candle here is supposed to represent for us joy. And we talked about hope kind of in the first week, and, and then last week, you know, peace we didn't really tie into the sermon with Luke 22 as well. But tonight is joy, and it does kind of work a little bit with our text. And so uh, here's what I thought about uh, asking all of you as we started tonight is, if I were to say to you, or to, to ask you, maybe across the table at Starbucks, um, because I do like Starbucks, um, what brings you joy? What's the source of joy in your life? Uh, probably many of you that have kids will undoubtedly go there first and say, well, it's probably my children, or it's this or that. But oftentimes, if I were to then follow up that question and say, all right, well, what is maybe a source of disappointment in your life? Most of the time, we would kind of say something about ourselves, or maybe the time that I could have done this or should have done this and didn't, or maybe uh, the way that I wasn't there uh, for this person, or maybe you you turn very quickly towards shortcomings. Uh, The difficult thing sometimes about this time of the year, whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas and when you have family in town, is uh, often we're reminded of both of those pieces, aren't we? And when you have family gathered together, you, you sometimes feel a great sense of joy. There are these moments of high highs, maybe when you're sitting around the table and you're looking at the meal, and it just sort of, maybe there's a brief moment where you think, this could be a a Norman Rockwell painting, you know, or this could be a postcard. This is, this is, this is perfect. And then everyone starts talking, and then, you know, someone brings up this thing or that thing, and then you realize, wow, there's some, there's some stuff, or maybe day one with the in-laws is good, and then by the time you get to day three, you're like, okay, when's your flight again, you know? And whatever that may be, oftentimes when, 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 our, when we are forced to kind of stop from work, maybe stop from our normal rhythms and, and face our life, maybe face the people who most represent our life. Because that's the thing about family is they end up being this mirror to us and they end up kind of reflecting the triumphs and the disappointments of our own lives. And that's the mixed bag of it. And you feel that as a parent. I think you feel that as a spouse. I think maybe you feel that as a child. You've got conflicting emotions where there are days where you think your dad is the greatest thing, and then there are days where you're keenly aware of all your dad's shortcomings or your mom's or whatever it is. And the truth is the people closest to us have this way of stirring up emotions in us, maybe because is a very real reflection of how we feel about ourselves. And we say, well, you know what? Yeah, there is, there is reason for joy, but there's also reason for disappointment. And how do we get through this? How do we kind of navigate this? Is, is there something beyond this, a way through this that we can say, well, maybe my joy or my disappointment is not on how well I've done or how well they're doing or any of that. It could, could there be something more hopeful than that? Could there be something that breaks through that uh, and maybe gives us a, a different set of lenses on this. Our text tonight is Luke 23, and it's a very familiar story that we usually talk about around Easter time. It's Luke 23, verse 32, if you turn there and kind of uh, get that ready. Um, you know what, I'm going to read it from here so I can pay attention to a few of my notes. Um, Luke 23, verse 32 says this, And they also led two other criminals to be executed with Jesus. 
And when they arrived at the place called the Skull, Golgotha, in some of your Bibles, they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. They drew lots as a way of dividing up his clothing. Now, there's a good amount of scripture that we're going to read tonight from this chapter, but you know that that sentence alone, a Jesus on the cross, uh, looking at these people that have turned against him and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do or they don't know what they're doing. That in itself could preach for a whole year on forgiveness and the power of what it means to say, to take the way of Jesus. Uh, very often we're used to kind of a, a world that tells us if you don't stand up for yourself, they're going to trample all over you. And so we're always trying to find this. Is there a tension between kind of defending the cause of the needy? What if I'm the needy, you know? And also this thing of, well, what, is there a, a Jesus way of kind of saying, all right, do your worst. I'll show you a way more powerful than power. It's the way of love and surrender. And so, you know, that, that could be a whole separate talk. We, we won't take that direction tonight, but that, that could be something you meditate on this week. Verse 35, and the people were standing around watching, but the leaders sneered at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. Okay, here's a little kind of exercise, maybe homework for you that you can do during the service. I know some of you, you're a little bit, you know, if you're like me, maybe a little bit attention struggles during a sermon, and so you got to do something compulsively, like check your phone or whatever. You could do that, or you could, op- actually don't do that, but you could open your Bible and, and in Luke 23, begin to circle here every time you see the word save. And then maybe when you get through that, then circle every time you see the word king. Just in this chapter, just in the chapter of Luke chapter 23. Because there's a theme that Luke is building here. King, save, Christ. All three of those words interplay with one another so closely. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. Let him save himself if he really is the Christ sent from God. The chosen one. The Meshiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the soldiers also mocked him. And they came to him offering him sour wine and saying, If you really are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And above his head was a notice of the formal charge against him. And it read this, This is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging next to Jesus insulted him. Aren't you the Christ? Just in these few verses alone, we've had king, save Christ, or the Anointed One, the Messiah. We've had those phrases used repeatedly. Responding, the other criminal spoke harshly to him and says, Don't you fear God, seeing that you've also been sentenced to die? We are rightly condemned, for we are receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when, we, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you that today... You will be with me in paradise. Sometimes we read these Bible verses and we are so used to kind of looking at them um, and reading them and seeing them with our eyes that we forget that the Gospels were heard before they were written and read. And so a good storyteller had a way of kind of building a cadence with his story to make you pay attention to different characters. Now, let's go back to these verses and and look for a moment at the progression of who's mocking Jesus. First, if you look kind of in, you've got Jewish leaders who are mocking Jesus. So if you created maybe a a totem pole, if you were to say, all right, let's create kind of a status chart here of the who's who to the Jewish people. Well, at the top of that would be Jewish leaders. 
And so we're seeing Jesus being mocked by Jewish leaders. You think, well, that's pretty bad, but those guys, they're kind of on the top of the food chain, so they probably mocked a lot of people. And then earlier in the chapter, in verse 10, you have Herod mocking Jesus. Now, who's Herod? Herod's the guy that called himself the king of the Jews, but he wasn't fully Jewish. He was this half-Jew that kind of snaked his way into the throne, and this whole grisly story of Herod having different family members executed. I mean, there's, there's awful, morbid legends about this guy, but he's the guy that some Jews thought, all right, not bad, we'll take a half-Jew over a Roman, but there were plenty of other Jews that said, wait a minute, this guy, his temple, Herod's temple, no good, because he's not the real deal. But even Herod is mocking Jesus. Then in verse 36, you have Roman soldiers mocking Jesus. They bring him sour wine that's kind of like um, uh, you're mocking an important person by bringing them the cheapest, uh, you know, it's like proposing a toast with like cheap wine intentionally to mock a person. Or maybe like a defender Tebowing after he sacked Tebow as a way of, you know, it's just, it's meant to be mockery. King, oh, here, here, I got it. Let's propose a toast with this sour vinegar. Now, who are Roman soldiers? Now, wait a minute. These guys represent the evil empire. These guys represent pagan rules. So now Jesus is not only being mocked by Jewish leaders and this sort of half-king who calls himself the king of the Jews, but now Roman leaders, Roman soldiers. Then it gets worse. A criminal on the cross. A person whom even the Roman society didn't think was worth keeping alive begins to mock Jesus. The picture Luke wants us to see is Jesus is at the bottom of the bottom right here. This is not Jesus sort of saying, okay, yeah, I came, I kind of need to get this cross thing over with. Can we do it? Okay, hey, oh, I died. Okay, yes, technically I've done it all. No, this is Luke showing us Jesus came and he took the most shamed place of all the most shameful place mocked not by just jewish leaders not by the half king uh, or the king the half jewish king but all the way down to where a fellow criminal is mocking him this is as low as it gets and yet luke wants us to see another side of the story like a good storyteller that his character of jesus is not just a, a flat character there's this innocence that's being proclaimed about jesus And so in verse 4, you have Pilate saying, hey, there's no legal basis for this. I can't find anything. Then you have later, in verse 41, another criminal saying that Jesus is innocent. Later on, you'll have a Roman centurion saying, Jesus is innocent. It's almost like Luke is kind of saying, yes, he's at the lowest of the low, but he didn't deserve that. Yes, he went to the most shameful place of all, But he didn't deserve that. And a number of people have called him innocent. The second kind of question that maybe we have to ask as we're kind of culturally, historically distant from from the scene is why all the mockery? I mean, why the hard feelings? I mean, it'd be one thing for for Romans to kind of say, well, this guy was was leading an insurrection or we thought he was and so and so let's just mock him as we crucify. But why the the Jewish mockery? Why the, the themes of Um, king and Christ and save. Why all those themes in the mockery? You know, there's a long, long storied tradition 
of the people of God waiting for God to send the anointed one, the chosen one. And there were several things they knew that this chosen one would do. One, there would be something David-like about him, which would mean he would be king, a king figure, and he would win stuff. I mean, David was the original guy who couldn't lose. This was the guy who won every fight, even as a kid against a giant. David's the original underdog hero that we all love to cheer. I'm refraining from another Tebow reference. I just can't stop. Okay. And so when you say, son of David, Messiah is going to be son of David, everybody knows, okay, we're going to get somebody who's going to be king, and he's always going to win. He's going to beat all the enemies of God. So they're expecting a king who will win. Then you have this other kind of Moses image, Moses language. Well, what did Moses do? He delivered. He saved. And so wrapped into this rich, rich expectation of Messiah was someone who's going to king, who's going to be king, who's going to win a great victory, and he's going to save. And they use all these phrases, king, save, Christ, Messiah, to mock Jesus. Why? Because in their minds, this is the opposite of what Jesus had done. How could the one who's supposed to be the king, instead of winning a victory and killing the Romans, how could he be killed by the Romans? How could he, instead of saving, be the one who's delivered into the hands of the Romans? This is all wrong. You're a sham, Messiah. You sit on a throne of lies. About 100 years after Jesus uh, ascended into heaven in the year A.D. 133, there's a fascinating story about a man named Simon Bar-Kosiba. And he was given, his name just meant, you know, Simon's son of Kosiba, but he rose up and led a great military insurrection. David, you're smiling because you've just been uh, reading all about this. But he led this uh, um, insurrection against the powers that be and, and and, and gave Israel a, a place of independence. So great were his battles and so amazing were his victories that they renamed him Simon Bar-Kochva, which means son of the star, which is a reference to an old Messiah prophecy. And they were thinking, there was even one rabbi that went on record to say, yep, he's the Messiah. And, be, and, a, and, a, and a person being validated by a rabbi, that's the kind of book endorsement you want. Okay? So great was his victory, and, and so independent, so peaceful was this time of, of, of independence that he, they made their own coins, and they made a coin that said, you're one. Isn't that something? As if to say, this is so much, God, we so believe this is God's Messiah, that the new age, the age to come has begun. It's, it's, it's started time all over again. This is year one. Well, it lasted till year three, until the Romans came and overtook it and, you know, and, and put them down and the insurrection was over. The people that followed this guy, Simon, were so bitter that they rever- not only reverted back to his original name, Simon Bar-Kosiba, but they changed it to Simon Ben-Koziba, which with the Z, Z sound, to, which, which really means son of a lie. They were bitter. We followed you for three years. Does this sound like a story we know? We followed you for three years. You gave us hope for a victory. You gave us hope that you were God's chosen one. And now it didn't work. What a lie. 
Now, this story is after Jesus, but the Jesus story that Luke is telling us is very much like that, isn't it? It taps into that same sort of disappointment that says, wait a minute, I thought, and now disappointment. What was supposed to be joy coming turned out to be disappointment. The flip side of intense joy is sometimes a crashing disappointment. The reason Luke is having us see Jesus going to the lowest of the low is because he wants us to know that that's how all the people around Jesus felt. They felt like their hopes had collapsed. Have any of you felt that way? Have any of you felt like you followed Jesus and you followed Jesus and you followed Jesus and wait a minute, why this? And why this? And how come this? That couldn't be. And you feel like you're crashing to the lowest of the low And disappointment is sinking down, down, down. What then? Well, Jesus, Jesus, Luke wants us to know, came to indeed win a great victory, to be the king, to be the one that saves. Not in a way that they thought, And there's this whole theology that develops later where they begin to understand a bit more, like, okay, so there's two comings, and you know, and and this one does this, and you know, all of this stuff. We could we could take a whole rabbit trail there, but we won't, because I want you to see this from the passage. The very first time Luke opens his gospel, the very first time he tells us the name of Jesus, it comes from the lips of an angel. And the very first time Luke introduces his main character, any of you that are, you like a good novel, you like good stories, you always know, look, if this is a Jason Bourne novel or whatever, whenever the character's introduced, the first scene, that's kind of important, right? It tells you something. The first time Luke kind of says something about Jesus comes from the lips of an angel. It's in Luke 1, verse 31. Look, the angel says to Mary, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of David, there it is, his father, and he will rule over Jacob's house forever. What about a a kingship and a victory? And there will be no end to his kingdom. Now pay attention for a little moment because this is what's remarkable to me is the angel says it. He's going to come. His name will be Jesus. The very name Jesus means what? Yahweh saves. And there will be no end to his kingdom. What does the thief, the criminal on the cross say? He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, wait a minute. He's dying. What do you mean come into your kingdom? Doesn't death mean that the dream is over? Doesn't death mean that this was all a nice little party while it lasted, but it's over now? How is it the criminal knows that Jesus has a kingdom that goes beyond death? How is it that the criminal says, wait a minute, there's something about this man and his kingdom that even death will not remarkable the answer is i don't know i don't know how he knew that (laughs) i don't know 
But I don't think it was on accident that the first person to utter the name of Jesus in Luke's story is an angel. And the last person to utter the name of Jesus in dialogue is a criminal. You could read the rest of Luke's Gospels, only one more chapter. Jesus' name is used, but never from a person's lips. The first person's lips, the name Jesus comes from in Luke's Gospel is an angel. The last person is a criminal. What's Luke trying to say? He's trying to say, from an angel to a criminal, we all call his name. We all call his name. Because only his name saves. You see, an angel is the first to announce Jesus as a king whose kingdom has no end. But a criminal is the first to confess Jesus as king whose kingdom has no end. Leave that up for a minute and soak that in. An angel's the first to announce it. His name's Jesus and his kingdom has no end. But it's a criminal that's the first one to confess it and say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke, by now, you should, we, 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 we are all keenly aware of this because we've been studying the book of Luke for a year now. I think this is uh, part 37, week 37, the 38, something like that in this, this Luke series. I know you're all thinking, 52 weeks in a year, 38, we took some time off this summer. But by now you know Luke's other theme. Luke's other theme is to tell us that the least, the last, the left out, all get in. They all get in to the kingdom. That's why Luke always tells us when Jesus is going to a Samaritan or a Gentile or a widow or a woman or the sick or the poor. That's why Luke says, has Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor because yours is the kingdom. That's why Luke repeatedly doesn't spiritualize this because he wants us to know even the person who counts themselves out, Jesus says you can be counted in. And the criminal is the last that has now become first. The criminal is the last that has now become first. As far as we know from the way Luke's telling it, he's the first guy to kind of say something about Jesus goes beyond death. When I think about that, I think that's pretty hopeful, isn't it? Because... When you think of who can call on Jesus' name, most of the time we tend to think that it's got to be a, a person who's pretty much an angel. Who is it that calls on Jesus and belongs in his kingdom? Well, you know, that woman, that guy, I mean, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're really goody, two shoes. I mean, they're, you know. And then maybe there's something in us, though, that says, okay, but criminal, I mean, that's a bit strong, Glenn. I mean, I'm, not, I'm no criminal. I'm no angel, but I'm not a criminal. This phrase uh, for criminal, even euphemistically in, in Jesus' day, was used a lot just to talk about a person who's a good-for-nothing, an evildoer. Like, good-for-nothing? I've heard that from my mom a time or two. Not me, but... And you might be thinking that, oh, good, good for nothing, evildoer. Well, maybe, maybe we do fit that description. Maybe what it takes is to recognize that there's nothing that we have on our own to stand before God. There's nothing that we have that can say, well, hey, just so you know, Jesus, I've 
kind of achieved angel status. And so, the good news is that even if you are at the end, you're blessed because you recognize that you're at the end, the bottom. The truth about Luke's Beatitudes is that it's really great that you recognize that you're the last and the lowest and the least. Because when you recognize it, you can say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The other thing that's so beautiful about this is the criminal just asks Jesus, really, he just asks for remembrance. What Jesus instead offers is presence. Jesus, remember me. Jesus, today you'll be with me. I'll do better than remember you. I just want you to know you'll be with me. You're here with me. Sometimes I think we underestimate what we really need to ask of God for ourselves. You know? We say a lot, well, what I need from God is just another chance, just a second chance to try to do this. I just need another, just give me another shot. I'll get it right this time. You ever had that moment in school where, you know, like you get called up to the, math, the blackboard to work on a math problem and you don't know how to do it? It's like algebra or whatever and you've been sleeping in the back, whatever. And the teacher calls you up and it's this complicated thing and you're like, yeah, I have no clue. X, carry the Y. I mean, I, 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 what do you do here? And so you're standing at the blackboard and you're struggling with a problem and you just try to figure it out. And you know it's wrong. and Everybody knows it's wrong. And you've got like sweat stains in your armpits now, you know. And, and the teacher looks at you and says, yeah, that's not right. And you're like, yep, yeah, I know. But I have good news for you. And you're thinking, what, I get to go home now? Or, you know? No, I've got good news for you. You get to try again. And he erases your work and says, you got a second chance. That's not only not good news, that's awful news. It's not good news that you get a second chance to do something you've never been able to do. It's not good news that you get to try again at something that's beyond your reach. That's why we had the New Testament reading tonight that says, look, part of how we get in on God putting things back together again is we realize this job's too big for us. That's why I think the criminal on the cross ought to be our poster child. Because... We want to imagine that we're like Gabriel, but we're not. And the sooner we realize what we need from God is not another chance. We need a new life. Not a new start. Not a new chance. I need something totally new inside. I mean, it's like, it's like looking at a boat and saying, you know, this boat needs a new coat of paint. No, it needs a new engine. And then after you put a new engine in it, you've got to rebuild everything else around it. Oh, well, that, that's kind of a big problem. Yes, yeah, that's a problem. Which is why Jesus is such joyful news. Part of the reason, I think, why Jesus is not joyful news is we don't recognize how awful our state has been. I'm not a criminal on a cross. Come on, I'm not. Hey! And Luke kind of wants us to say, okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm asking for, remember me, and Jesus is saying, you're going to be with me because you need me with you. For us, we can say, 
We need Jesus with us because it's the only way we move forward. It's the only way we become different. It's the only way life breaks out inside of us because He has come. Why joy on this third Sunday of Advent? Because Jesus has come. And His grace is far more than we ever thought was possible. So when you think about your friends and your family and your relationships, things that bring joy and things that bring disappointment, know that there's a light that shines in the middle of all of those moments. And it's the light of joy of Christ's presence that says, I shine brighter than your best. I shine brighter than your worst. Whatever you could find joy in, I shine brighter than that. Whatever you're ashamed of and and find disappointment in, I'm brighter than that. Because Jesus came. Maybe a way to say it is that because Jesus went to the lowest of the low, we are never too low and we are never too late. Because Jesus went to the lowest of the low, the mockery even by a criminal. That we're never too low and we're never too late. That's good news. Jesus has come. So we make it to bring his joy, to put it together, to bring new life. Forgiveness, I think, is a small way that we kind of show that even in the world around us. Think about the transforming power of God's forgiveness for us in Christ. And then when we turn around and say to another person, I forgive you. The light of Christ, joy, begins to fill the world. It's a little bit like what we'll do on Christmas Eve, actually, because on Christmas Eve, we'll start with this one candle, right? And then they'll light another person's candle. And and all of a sudden, you look around, the whole room will be lit with candles. I think that's the idea. That God in Christ has said to even the worst of us, there is forgiveness. There is a joy beyond this failure. There is a hope beyond this mess. And we say, thank you, God. And then we turn and we say, well, in Christ's name, I forgive you. Even though there is disappointment in this marriage. Even though there is disappointment in my heart. There is a light that speaks of joy. That only comes because of forgiveness. And so I bring it to you. Could we do that over the next couple of weeks? When family's in town? Could we do that when we sit around a table Instead of saying, all, fixating on all the disappointment and all the hurt, and all, could we say, you know what? You know what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, no, yeah, yes, yes, yes. But there is a light that came from heaven that announced forgiveness. And joy came into my heart. Can I bring joy into your heart by saying, finally and fully, I forgive you? What if families did that this Christmas? What if the joy began to spread? 
tonight as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord, I thought it might be good as we get ready for our, our silent prayer to pray the, the psalm, the Old Testament reading that, the, that we chose tonight, to pray this together because it's a beautiful prayer, not unlike the words that the criminal begins to say to Jesus. It starts with the word remember, which is a, the beginning of a lot of psalms, a lot of different Jewish prayers. And so take a moment, and Braden, you can play for us while we, while we read this, but let's pray this Psalm 25 together, and then I'll come back up and we'll do our silent confession. 